Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is um, Alan Manning. I'm from the Economics Department uh, here at LSE. Um, I'm very pleased um, today to be hosting a talk by uh, Mariana uh, Mazzucato. Uh, she's going to talk about her latest book, uh, Mission Economy, a Moonshot Guide to Changing uh, Capitalism. Uh, so I think she's going to talk for about uh, 40 minutes, and then we'll have about 20 minutes for some questions and answers. Uh, if you're watching on Zoom, please put your questions in the Q&A uh, box. If you're watching on Facebook, you can submit questions through uh, the comments uh, feature. Uh, if you do put in a question, please say who you are, where you're from, and uh, where you're tuning in from. Anyway, without more ado, you don't really want to hear from me, you want to hear from Mariana, so I'll just pass over to her. Let's see here, unmute, there we go. Uh, so hello everyone, there's lots of you out there and thank you Alan for the introduction. Um, the book is hot off the press and someone from UCL just said to me, so why are you doing this at LSE <laughs> instead of UCL? Anyway, UCL, uh, sorry, LSE has these wonderful uh, public lectures and a great podcast. So I think it's an absolutely fantastic format to be able to uh, uh, launch the book properly with a, a lecture about it. I've done lots of launch events this week more as fireside chats with the British Library at 5 by 15. This is the first time I'm actually properly presenting it with our uh, wonderful PowerPoint technology. So let me first share my screen to make sure the technology works. There we go. Presentation mode. Fantastic. Good. So um, the reason I wrote the book is I've actually been working uh, with policymakers globally now for about three or five years on the concept of bringing missions to the heart of policymaking. Uh, so, for example, an industrial strategy, that means instead of making a random list of sectors that one wants to prioritize, what does it look to, uh, sorry, what does it look like to think about missions and public purpose at the center of an industrial strategy and then designing that so that all your different sectors work together, collaborate in order to actually fulfill, you know, solutions towards the biggest problems that we have, whether they be around climate, health, inequality, and so on. And I just felt that, you know, the work we did together and also the kind of thinking behind it, which is also at the heart of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose that I direct here at University College London, it's, it's just so full of hope <laughs> um, in a time where unfortunately there's not much hope. And I really felt like actually sharing some of the stories and some of the ideas with the broader public, not just academics and policymakers. So it really is kind of a, um, a layman's book. Um, the, the subtitle is A Guide to a Changing Capitalism. And it kind of has been written guide-ish in the sense of, you know, here's some things you might actually do in terms of um, redesigning procurement, industrial strategy, innovation policy, to be actually mission-oriented and purpose-oriented. And the word moonshot is sometimes confusing because people can mean different things uh, from it. So towards the end of the presentation, I will try to be quite specific about what I don't mean by moonshot. <laughs> um, but you know, most of the presentation is what I do mean by it. So um, first of all, the context, you know, this book has come out um, at a particular time, uh, a time really of global tragedy in terms of this health pandemic that we're all facing the challenges that are being faced by governments worldwide, by businesses worldwide and citizens worldwide is enormous. Definitely the biggest I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. Um, and it needs governing, right? Governing in terms of organizational governance um, and in terms of inter-organizational governance, the ecosystem, how people work together, how organizations work together. And it's been quite striking, I think, for, for all of us to see just how challenging even some pretty basic things have been, like personal you know, protective equipment, actually making sure that frontline workers have it and have enough of it and are truly protected, even with the second big uh, wave of lockdowns that many countries are undergoing, uh, testing capacity, and again, rolling out that testing, or you know, even the vaccine, we are very close to having, or we do have a vaccine, but that's not enough, right? We need capacity to actually roll it out globally. In fact, the World Health Organization keeps reminding us that you know, we can't create a vaccine apartheid. We actually must make sure that it is globally accessibly, sorry, uh, globally available and accessible. 
Anyway, so this huge governance challenge, unfortunately, we've seen so many countries really on their knees. It's been quite um, uh, also uplifting, actually, to see that some countries like uh, Vietnam or regions like Kerala and India, on the back of actually having invested a lot over the last decades in their own public administration, have done um, you know, quite well. No one's done perfectly well. Everyone is struggling. But the degree to which you know, governments in particular have been able to deal with the crisis is not uncorrelated with the investments they've actually been making uh, in-house. Uh, we actually have a new UNDP report coming out soon around that specific issue, what we can learn from globally, uh, from both developing and developed countries around that. But anyway, just to say the context is one of tragedy. It's one that's continuing in terms of the challenges that are being faced. Um, and of course, we should remember, I mean, I, I remember that not this February, which is next month, but last February, the month before uh, the March, where a lot of you know, the COVID tragedy really started to enter our brains, um, that we realized just you know, what a health pandemic it was. That February was really characterized by you know, other things on, 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 on the front pages of our newspapers and television screens. And that was flooding in, in Venice, you might remember. There was forest fires in different places. So the climate crisis is of course happening in parallel. And there's multiple crises which are actually quite uh, related one to another. And I just have some uh, statistics here. And I think the most frightening one is really that, you know, even though the IPCC report has warned us all that we just have 10 years left, and we have an uh, 18 year old uh, Greta telling us, listen to the science, somehow we're still not getting our acts together, right? 2019, uh, we had five, uh, 55 billion in subsidies to fossil fuel companies in the EU. And even um, in this past year, 56% of the COVID-19 recovery funding allocated to energy companies has gone to uh, uh, um, uh, fossil fuel projects to the equivalent of 151 billion. Just to say, you know, it's not just that we have a climate crisis, but we're simply not getting our acts together quick enough. And unfortunately, the, talk, the clock is ticking. Um, ooh, why is my slides not moving anymore? There we go. Um, and before really kind of confronting those challenges and the other very uh, 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 urgent challenges that we have that I think are very uh, well summarized with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, I just want to pause a minute. And because this whole presentation and the whole book is really about the change that we need in how we govern the public sector, how we govern the private sector, and especially how they relate one to another, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page on just how uh, dysfunctional really the current way that we operate is. Um, not that you necessarily need that. Uh, I think most people realize that, but just to make sure. Uh, so first of all, and this is, um, this is what I talk about in uh, chapter two of the book, actually, after setting the scene of why I think a mission-oriented approach is powerful. Chapter two is all about, you know, well, why is this actually really needed right now? And, and what are the problems actually that we're facing in terms of how we have decided to organize our capitalist system? Uh, so first, um, you know, Finance. Finance is very important. It's very important to actually finance the things that are needed, including, of course, uh, battling climate change. But what's been quite extraordinary in the recent decades is just how much the sector has been financing itself. <laughs> so it's not just that our planet is on fire. Finance is on fire in terms of just how much of it goes back to finance, insurance and real estate. Um, that's the acronym there. Um, and what's interesting, and, and by the way, this figure here is from Andy Haldane's work at the Bank of England. He's talked about just, you know, how much financial intermediation has grown uh, relative to the rest of the economy. And my previous book, The Value of Everything, The Value of Everything, also looked at some of the underlying uh, reasons that this has happened. Um, and you see this also just in terms of, you know, how little, for example, in the UK of all of the uh, banking finance uh, only something like 20% of it even goes back into the real economy. 80% of it, again, has gone into uh, other parts of finance, but also the housing bubble itself. Um, and the level of private debt, which, by the way, is back at record levels in countries like the UK. So private debt to disposable income is back at record levels. And that's what caused the financial crisis uh, 10 years ago. Um, you know, this has also been fueled very much by this financialized, ultra financialized form of our global uh, economy. Um, second, uh, business itself is quite uh, financialized. It's not just finance. 
Um, and so uh, a colleague, Bill Lazonic, has written a lot about this. We also wrote some articles about just how much we have a reinvestment problem. Uh, Four trillion uh, dollars have been used by the Fortune 500 companies in the last uh, 10 years just to buy back their own shares, uh, to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay. A bit of stock buybacks is not a huge problem, but an excessive amount is a, a symptom of what's happening, unfortunately, in much of, not all, much of the business sector. And this, in fact, is why, uh, you know, in places like Davos, which this week was happening on Zoom instead of uh, uh, in Switzerland, uh, there's been so much talk over the last uh, uh, two or three years about the need to bring stakeholder capitalism to the core of how businesses uh, think and work and organize themselves. In other words, bring purpose. I'll, be, I'll keep coming back to this notion of purpose and take it outside a bit of the silo of corporate governance, but also, you know, there's been uh, lots of talk about this. Um, and how to make sure that this uh, talk also walks, <laughs> the walk of stakeholder capitalism, um, I'll come to that towards the end. But, you know, just the fact that it's being recognized as a problem, at least it's being talked about, uh, is a good thing. And so as I move on, I will talk about the need for purpose within government, but what would it look like if purpose is actually at the center of the economic system itself? in how public, private, and third sector uh, organizations actually work together. Um, and again, you know, thinking about government, <laughs> this is our third problem. Uh, it isn't necessarily purposeful. Uh, governments have been, um, have sort of bought into the idea that at best they can just fix market failures, at best they can de-risk the risk takers out there, uh, the entrepreneurs, my previous book, um, before the value book, The Entrepreneurial State, tried to debunk that by actually looking at places like Silicon Valley and showing how uh, everything that makes this uh, iPhone and any of our smart products smart and not stupid was actually government finance from the internet, GPS, touchscreen, and Siri, which doesn't mean that government made the iPhone. That's a silly comment. It means that without these government finance, publicly financed technologies, there'd be very few waves to surf in California because they do surf a lot there. Um, and so the question is, if we don't really understand this active kind of co-creating, not just fixing role of government, it becomes really hard actually to tackle the challenges that we have, whether they be climate uh, challenges, health challenges, or all the other, again, challenges that the SDGs today present us, like getting the plastic out of the ocean. That requires co-creation uh, of value, not just assuming that value is created in business and then fixed when things go wrong by governments. And you know, what's interesting is that the market failure theory, which you know, all economists use, including myself, of course we shouldn't throw it away. It's very useful. You know, we know that when we have positive and negative externalities and other sorts of uh, market failures, there's a very important role for government. The problem is that when we want to actually transition and transform and have something like a, a Green New Deal, and so on, it becomes very hard to just fix and bandage our way uh, towards that transition. And even public goods, right? I mean, the public good problem, which is that, you know, for example, when you have strong positive externalities, as we do when, you know, for basic research, the benefits are so wide that there's little incentive for a private company to invest in it, hence governments invest in basic research. The word public good, it sounds good, right? The word good is one of the two words. But if it's just seen as correcting for something that the private sector is not doing, it becomes very hard actually to frame it as something broader and more inspirational, like the concept, say, of the common good, right? So how can we actually turn the public good away from just being a correction for something that someone's not doing towards a real kind of objective of what we can do together? But I definitely would not argue that we should throw out market failure theory. We just have to complement it with something much more ambitious which is about co-creating and co-shaping markets, if we're actually interested in the challenges we have. And I was quite uh, interested when recently uh, a Tory lord um, in the UK government said that, you know, all this kind of outsourcing that we've seen uh, by the UK government, and, and personally I've seen this globally, uh, to uh, consulting companies like Deloitte, PwC, KPMG, and so on, and he was talking about the outsourcing that has been done also very recently, the immense outsourcing to manage both Brexit and COVID. Uh, he argued this has infantilized government, 
Very interesting word. In other words, when government, I mean, he didn't say it like I'm about to say it, I'm putting it now in my own words, that when government doesn't actually get its act together and, um, you know, invest in its own capabilities and overly outsources kind of its brain, uh, it becomes infantilized. So it can eventually also become a bit stupid and um, you have a self-fulfilling prophecy. You are no longer investing in your own capacity. So you become overly reliant actually on others doing part of the job for you. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, this whole talk will be a, on why we need public-private partnerships, but that's very different from outsourcing your brain to the private sector. So in um, chapter three of the book, uh, and sorry, I'm actually going through it quite uh, uh, narrowly here. I go through, you know, why is it? Why have we bought into this idea of, um, you know, this idea that at best business creates value and government then fixes the problems that happen along the way. And that we also have a pretty narrow understanding of the word market. We often confuse, by the way, the word market and business. Uh, the market is not business. The business is not the market. The market is the outcome of how we organize and govern business, how we govern the public sector, uh, how third sector organizations, civil society organizations, including trade unions also interact with these two other uh, uh, um, sectors, but especially how they interrelate one to another. So market outcomes are very much uh, outcomes of how we govern all these different public, private, third sector organizations and how they relate one to another. But the myths kind of impeding progress, the myths that are impeding our ability to, as I said you know, early, getting our acts together and actually really uh, investing, innovating, collaborating in a solution-oriented way and especially getting government organizations, public organizations to be more dynamic and capable uh, have to do with these kind of five myths in terms of who creates value. This again goes back to some of the core uh, points that I made in my book on value. Um, you know, the production function itself doesn't really have government uh, 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 entrepreneurship at the heart of it. Uh, the idea is that businesses, again, create value and government can redistribute it or fund some of the background kind of conditions that are needed, but it's not really seen as a value creator. Uh, markets, I've already you know, covered that, the idea that uh, markets are out there and they sometimes fail and then we need government to come in and fix those market failures. Uh, in the book, I go into the heart of exactly where that theory came from and why it's limiting in the ways I just mentioned, but also assumptions around efficiency, the ideas that have trickled down actually in some ways from market failure theory into public management. So new public management and public choice theory, uh, which basically has taught us to think that, you know, some of the problems in government is because it's too uh, open to being captured. Um, it's too uh, inefficient for different reasons. And so, you know, the solutions that we see are, you know, sometimes uh, find that government maybe just needs to be run more like a business. And so we start calling uh, students and patients and hospitals, clients and customers. Uh, and I go into the history of public choice theory and new public management and dismantle some of the assumptions that are there. But also, you know, it's so interesting. The, if you look at the management literature, one of the big um, advances that was made in the kind of business school world was that we moved away from thinking that businesses were being limited by the kind of, you know, outside um, forces, right? So if you look back at Michael Porter's five forces framework, that slowly evolved into um, uh, a perspective that was much more about looking at the internal resources of the firm, not just outside and sort of, you know, the market pressures. And there's really interesting literature uh, in both evolutionary economics, Schumpeterian economics, and the management economics by people like David T. So the dynamic capabilities of the firm, tracing back to Edith Penrose, wonderful work on that, but we don't have the equivalent for the dynamic capabilities of the public sector. And that's again, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't see the public sector itself as a co-creator of value along with business, you don't have those incentives actually to invest within your own dynamic capabilities and being a learning organization, thinking out of the box, risk-taking and innovating in order to uh, you know, co-create value. Um, and that again comes, you know, that in, in some ways is one of the reasons why then we end up with all this outsourcing which in the book I also document empirically. And then also, you know, all the language that we have around policymaking, this idea that we're leveling the playing field and that that's a good thing. Uh, don't tilt the playing field. Well, it's gonna be really hard to tackle uh, climate change or a health pandemic. And again, all the 17 goals that I'll 
discuss in a minute by tilting, sorry, by, uh, by leveling the playing field. So if we can actually admit that economic growth has not just a rate, but also a direction, what does that mean for the role of policy to help tilt the playing field towards a direction that we want? For example, growth that is more inclusive, growth that is more sustainable, um, that requires a different language, but also a different way to frame the tools. That doesn't mean we tilt towards picking one sector, one firm, one technology, but it does mean picking directions and then really aligning all the different instruments we have from tax, procurement, grants, and loans to get there, rewarding certain types of behaviors. Right. So that's the pause, right? That's the moment of, of saying, hey, we've got a problem. We have three huge issues in terms of how we've organized finance, how we've organized business, how we've organized government. And it's not so surprising that we've done that wrongly because there's a lots of really faulty assumptions in how we think about value markets and so on. And what's so striking is that actually, you know, one of the greatest feats <laughs> that humankind 50 years ago did, which was getting to the moon, which believe me is much harder than producing PPE, personal protection equipment, we somehow did that, right? Um, and so what I do in the book is I unpick what it took uh, to get there in such a short amount of time, actually. Kennedy's speech was in 62, um, and the moon landing was in 69, so it actually took less than the uh, uh, decade that they thought it would take, but it took an extraordinary amount of uh, uh, innovation, of investment, of collaboration, of capacity, capability within both the public sector and the private sector. Uh, to, and, and, and for that reason, it's really actually for that reason that I find it so powerful. I've been writing for many years about the lack of capacity inside the public sector. And by looking back at, at you know, the very conscious decisions that NASA and other public institutions were making at the time about remaining capable precisely in order to partner with the private sector in such a difficult feat, there's just really, really interesting lessons there. Um, there's also huge reasons why we don't want to cut and paste <laughs> the moon landing towards the social problems that we have today. I'll talk about that later. To me, that's just very obvious. You know, the social problems that we're having today, whether it's around inequality or lots of the underlying uh, problems that we have with this health pandemic, for example, the digital divide. Um, I've got four kids, they're all, you know, working at home and, and they have access to digital technology much more than many of their schoolmates. And this is in London, a very rich city, let alone if we think of developing countries. So the digital divide is alive and well, and it's not going to be solved simply through some sort of technocratic uh, solution. However, this, you know, the basic point about just the amount of leadership that was provided uh, to, uh, to even kind of frame that very ambitious uh, 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 mission, the amount of risk-taking and innovation, the agility and flexibility inside uh, the public sector and the private sector, and also how they actually work together in quite a flexible way. The attention and the interest also, this is a bit more ex post, all the spillovers that happened along the way, the way that finance was thought about, and really that kind of partnership with purpose. This is what I want to review a bit in the next uh, uh, slides. But these really, like these words that are written here in huge, I don't usually use font this big, it's because these all go against <laughs> everything I just said before, are the myths about how uh, a government should work. Um, and even though, again, the social problems we have are different from a, a purely, semi-purely technological one, as it was to get to the moon, these characteristics are still incredibly important. And in order to debunk those uh, false premises of how government should work and does work, I think it's quite useful to look at just something we did 50 years ago, which we would have never been able to do had we bought into this idea that at best government is there to fix a market failure or de-risk Elon Musk. Um, so, you know, in the book, I start with a speech where the you know, phrase that everyone knows is that we're going, you know, we want to get to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Well, hey, you know, think of do leaders speak this way today? Do they speak this way about climate change? We're going to do it because it's hard and it's urgent. It's going to cost a huge amount of money. We will probably fail along the way, but it's worth it. 
Um, no, we don't, we don't have policymakers that think that way. And what was so also incredible is they had no clue how to get there. <laughs> they kind of fudged it like, yeah, yeah, we'll go in a decade. But actually, they still hadn't figured out how there was different uh, proposals. They finally ended up with the uh, particular one called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. I'm not a scientist, so I won't pretend to tell you how that worked. But just the fact that they were willing to experiment and innovate on something that actually they at the time didn't understand that well. And also a lot of the technology actually didn't exist um, and, and required a very different way um, for also scientists to be working together was quite extraordinary. It was also quite incredible that, you know, as they started on the task, um, they realized that their own organizational setup, and I'm talking about NASA here, was way too siloed, way too rigid, way too inertial, way too vertical, um, uh, you know, and, and, and that was going to be a problem. And anyone who's worked with government and inside government or with government will know that this is often a complaint. Uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Bracken, who set up gov.uk um, and government digital services, he's actually part of our institute as a visiting professor, he was always complaining to me about just how siloed uh, the UK government was in terms of how the treasury and base and all the different uh, departments worked. And a, and a really tragic, on the tragic day when Apollo 1 uh, blew up with the simulation, Gus Grissom, one of the three astronauts who died on January 27th, 1967, uh, just hours before uh, they all died in the fire. He was just having all this problem hearing and the, and, and the different um, mission control rooms were having a problem communicating. And he just cried out at one point, Jesus Christ, you know, how are we gonna get to the moon if we can't even talk between two or three buildings? Um, and, and, and I think this is a very damning uh, point if we think again of how government uh, departments don't necessarily work together in a dynamic way. But then what happened after that was that on the back of uh, George Mueller coming uh, to the project from Bell Labs, a lot of thought went into organizational innovation, uh, very much in the way that, again, business schools today think about these things. Uh, you know, when people talk about how to rejuvenate a mature corporation, how to make sure that corporations are not, you know, uh, uh, getting so siloed that they're not able to think outside of the box one immediately starts looking at organizational dynamism, how to remain flexible. And this mapping here is how NASA ended up trying to create a much more uh, flexible and agile uh, organization on the back of these criticisms of, of, of being too siloed. And that was because it needed to do that in order to fulfill this kind of purpose-oriented, mission-oriented uh, task. You don't just do organizational change for the sake of it. The point was um, in order to actually do something incredibly hard and to work together in a flexible, dynamic, innovative, risk-taking way, we're going to have to change how our organization actually operates. Um, and what was really interesting, and this is the bit that I usually uh, kind of bang on about, is that, you know, this was not just NASA-led. Of course, you know, yes, it was Kennedy and the boys saying that, you know, we had to do this to beat the Russians. Sputnik was the challenge of the day but it would have never happened without huge amounts of private sector innovation from companies like Motorola, Honeywell, GM, Grumman. I, I talk a bit about it in the book, um, but what was really interesting was how they collaborated with NASA. And, um, you know, they paid a lot of attention, NASA, the, the, the civil servants paid a lot of attention in how to collaborate with the private sector. The idea that you had to actually be careful that the procurement contracts were written in such a way that were really outcomes focused, but very open on the how. If you are gonna micromanage you know, the businesses you're working with, you're gonna stifle innovation. You want the businesses as, as well as your own organization to be experimenting, to welcome kind of trial and error. So you wanted to keep open the how, but very specific on there was a common purpose. You, know, you wanted to get to the moon and back. There were certain things that had to be done. Um, and so I think there's such a lesson there today in how we uh, use government instruments from grants, loans, procurement, how to make them really be able to pick the willing, right? Don't pick winners, pick the willing, foster as much um, different types of collaborations across different sectors um, in order to uh, uh, find solutions for uh, important problems. And by the way, the sectors involved went beyond aerospace. There is a lot of innovation in nutrition, in materials, in textiles, in electronics. The whole software industry as we know it today, in some ways, was an outcome of that mission. 
Um, in fact, you know, in, in the entrepreneurial state, when I talk about the technologies in this thing, it wasn't just publicly financed. This was publicly financed to solve a problem. The internet itself came from trying to solve the problem of getting the satellites to communicate. It wasn't like, oh, we really need the internet. And that's actually what worries me sometimes today when there's this obsession about AI or quantum computing. Well, let's remember that those very technologies came from trying to solve problems and those were the solutions to the problems, which doesn't mean you don't focus at all on sectors or technologies. Of course you do, but it does mean to be careful then when we have industrial strategies where we make you know, a list of top sectors or, or top technologies, uh, the more we can get intersectoral collaboration to solve problems, the more also technological change will potentially uh, spill over. And also in looking in some of the uh, you know, documents from NASA at the time, it was so interesting to see not only how they were very careful on designing things like procurement to foster that uh, dynamic partnership and bottom-up innovation for a public goal, but also how they were you know, kind of clear, this is not meant to become completely speculative. So they had no excess profits clauses within these contracts. Um, and even more interesting, I found in reading some uh, uh, quotes from Ernest Brackett, who at the time was the uh, head of NASA procurement, he said, oh, and we also have to be careful uh, about brochuremanship. You know, they didn't have PowerPoints, I think, at the time, like my beautiful one today. But, you know, as we know, a lot of consulting companies, that seems to be what they do very well, make PowerPoints. And so, um, you know, uh, this idea that we need to, I'm speaking as NASA, NASA needs to invest in its own capabilities, its own R&D, even in areas they might not be doing the, the investment itself, but in order to remain capable and intelligent, so not to be captured by brochuremanship. Um, I just love that. I keep uh, mentioning that when I speak to my friends who work at PwC and Deloitte. Um, and also what was so interesting was that so many spillovers happened along the way. You know, again, I've already mentioned all these different sectors. It wasn't just aerospace, but also that a lot of things that happened along the way weren't expected. It was, you know, innovation is very uncertain. It's not a linear process. Viagra did not come out of this. No, but just to say, just to give you an example in modern day, Viagra was not meant to be for what people use it today. It was meant to be for the heart. That is, you know, very common. You look for one thing and something else pops up literally in that case. Uh, but you know, all, sorry, all these different spillovers, you know, uh, uh, that came from the moon landing, there's a great NASA uh, uh, website that talks about the 20 things we wouldn't have without space travel. And it's, you know, incredible. And this is really important. Why is it important? When we evaluate public investments today, whether we're evaluating, you know, is the BBC a good, you know, uh, uh, investment for money was a particular uh, strategy good or not, it's very important not just to evaluate them based on static cost benefit analysis and net present value calculations, we also need to be able to capture things like these dynamic spillovers that happen along the way. Um, and also the money, I mean, you know, it costs a lot of money. And, and Kennedy was very upfront about this from the beginning. He said, you know, it's going to cost us a lot, a staggering sum, though somewhat less than what we pay for cigarettes and cigars every year. But, you know, if we don't just look at the money, but also look at the multiplier effect that the money had, that's why we need to look at things like the spillovers. And it's precisely because the Apollo program ended up being so economy-wide, intersectoral, and causing all these really dynamic collaborations that actually it also became very valuable in terms of per uh, kind of dollar spent. So it doesn't mean just, you know, throw money out of windows, helicopter money on these kind of big projects. It does mean actually organize them in such a way that can really be intersectoral solutions focused towards big uh, problems that we can decide on uh, together. And I'll come back to that in a minute when, uh, you know, who decides what the missions are. Um, so really, you know, what the book does, and I've got only eight minutes left, so I'll go through the rest kind of quickly. Uh, what I've already talked about really is kind of the underlying premise of the book on why we should be able to uh, think in a more purpose and mission-oriented way today around the most pressing problems of our time. Um, and, you know, we should remember that the 17 Sustainable Development Goals were were an outcome actually of huge amounts of negotiation and stakeholder consultation around the world. And every country has signed up to them. So, you know, this really to me should be a call for action of either take your name off, you know, you signed it, change your mind, fine, take your name off, 
country-wise, countries when they sign, or if you're still serious about this, you need, we, we absolutely need some sort of an uh, investment pathway, an innovation pathway that includes organizational innovation, technological innovation, social innovation, but we really need to be, you know, to, we could get quite inspired actually when we think back and think, what would it look like to treat each one of these challenges with the same urgency with the same seriousness, with the, with the level of dynamic capability and capacity in both public and private and new types to organize, sorry, new ways to design policy, industrial innovation, development, procurement, and so on, that really fosters that, that serious stakeholder capitalism and not just the talk uh, around it. And so what I worked on in the last uh, two or three years with different countries in terms of their industrial strategy, but also specifically with the European Commission, um, and with Carlos Maldas, who was the commissioner at the time of the Department for Innovation, was what would it look like, right, if we had this mission-oriented approach? So starting with the grand challenges, these are the SDGs. For the moon landing, it was the space race, but turning it into very concrete missions that are targeted. You can actually say, did we achieve it or not? You can't answer that if you just say climate change, inequality. If you say did we get to the moon and back again in one generation? Do we have 100 carbon neutral cities uh, in a particular uh, region like Europe? Have we gotten the plastic out of the ocean, 90% of it, yes or no, as opposed to just keeping it really kind of vague and broad? Um, and then how do we get as many different sectors, right? Like outside of just the siloed sector mentality involved in actually collaborating around these missions. And then next uh, 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 way down where it says mission projects there, how can we redesign existing tools? I'm not even arguing for new tools, existing tools, procurement, grants, loans, and so on to really pick the willing and galvanize as much of that uh, 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 um, bottom-up innovation, the business community and other types of organizations, um, both public and, and, and third sector. And so, you know, for the report, um, I usually have it around me anyway, um, I just chose two particular examples that are very global in terms of clean oceans, SDG 13, climate change, SDG 14, and just, you know, gave this example that I just mentioned. And if you look at all those different sectors that would be critical, say, for a climate change mission, this is not just about renewable energy in the same way that the moon landing was not just about aeronautics. You would need a lot of innovation, investment, and collaboration with sectors as different as construction, real estate, energy, social sector, and so on. And what was great was that this uh, approach was actually also adopted by the European Commission. So the Horizon program has a chunk of money, not enough, but let's not go there, um, uh, for mission-oriented innovation, basically in order to stop just kind of handing it out to uh, areas, but actually around problems and making sure that the uh, program had particular ways to, again, then galvanize a new forms of collaboration. And so, you know, the missions have to be bold, have a clear direction, foster that cross-sector, I should say interdisciplinary as well. We always forget that uh, poets are quite useful, aren't they? The humanities, I think, need to be part of this. My own kids all know about the plastic-free ocean mission, not because an academic a minister or a business leader uh, told them about it, but because of David Attenborough's wonderful documentary, Blue Planet, where that last episode is so tragic with all the baby dolphins uh, choking on the plastic. So how can we bring also the creative sector to the table, but also design these missions to really drive that multiple bottom-up solutions as the moon landing did? Um, um, in another report I wrote on governing, I looked at the importance of also thinking of what it meant for the specific capabilities inside the um, a public sector, including, um, including these issues, for example, of, of how do we evaluate public investments outside of uh, cost-benefit analysis? How can we crowd in as much different types of finance? So for organizations like the European Investment Bank, how can it itself become more mission-oriented and crowd in other types of finance? Um, and the portfolio uh, management of the process, extremely important. So we don't end up putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, let me just skip on because I've already said enough about Europe. Um, there was a paper that we wrote in IEPP that you can go to if you're interested in this issue of, you know, more dynamic ways to evaluate uh, public programs outside of net present value. But that is extremely important. Had the moon landing been judged ex ante, based on cost-benefit analysis, I can guarantee they would have never bothered to try. The risks were just way too high. 
Um, I also worked very closely with Greg Clark on the back of that work, the 2017 industrial strategy was uh, more challenge oriented than the previous one. That was just a list of those five sectors, you know, aeronautics, automobiles, life sciences, creative industries, and financial services to do what? So on the back of this work, um, uh, four challenges were chosen. And then I worked very closely with David Willits um, in co-chairing a commission for mission oriented innovation, which we hosted inside IAPP. And this is just an interesting example, the future of mobility challenge that we work very closely with the challenge leads and Bayes, the Department for uh, Innovation. And even just by putting the word universally accessible travel, um, you know, that would mean that some of those bottom-up innovations would have to come from the area, say, of disabilities. Um, I'm currently working with the Camden uh, part of London, and it's fantastic because what we're doing with Georgia Gould, who is uh, co-chairing that, is we're looking at specific places like social housing as a place through which uh, carbon neutrality can be done, but how do we also bring citizens to the fore of that process, the people actually living in the estates as being part of the citizen engagement to also talk about sustainable living instead of a technocratic kind of top-down process. We're looking at youth centers, uh, school meals. This is something that we have been working on also with Sweden. Uh, school meals as a place, uh, as a very specific thing that we can have a carbon neutral strategy on, so healthy tasty, sustainable uh, school meals and how to get kids involved in that process. That notion can also go right through the curriculum. But again, it's so specific. You can actually answer after a couple of years, do we now have across uh, a Camden healthy, sustainable, uh, uh, tasty school meals? And can that really galvanize again, all that collaboration between public and private institutions? Oops, I'm not sure what happened there. There we go. Um, right. Don't believe the hype. If I can just have one extra minute. <laughs> uh, what is the hype? <laughs> the hype is as soon as you say we need to rethink the state, you get the usual critiques. Oh, this is just about bigger government. It's not. It's not about the money tree. It's about smarter government. It's about government actually creating more additionality, making things happen that would not have happened anyway. Um, oh, this is about picking winners, Concord, British Leyland. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not about putting all your eggs in one basket. It's precisely to do the opposite. Concord was a project. What we want is as many different projects, portfolio approach to help get that cross-sectoral collaboration to fulfill these public missions. So just look at those diagrams. It's not about Concord. <laughs> this is about ideology. No, it's not. It's about a better form of capitalism, right? So there's no point in talking about stakeholder capitalism if we don't understand how to properly have a better form of capitalism. It's not the great leap forward. Um, and it really is about solving problems together. It's the SDGs. We're never going to get there. Let's get our names off that list if we're not serious. This is just one way that I hope can help us design our future, but it also requires, and this is really critical, governing the process for the public good. What we're seeing today with the vaccine is lots of private sector innovation, lots of public sector innovation, $12 billion worth has come from the public sector for the different vaccines that are out there, a lot also from the private sector, but if we don't govern it for the common good, we've got a problem. So, you know, Dr. Tedros from the World Health Organization has talked about vaccine apartheid. 80% uh, of the dosages have already been bought up by the uh, uh, rich countries, but also we're mismanaging the patents. He's called for a patent pool. So, you know, coming back to this notion of how NASA was very careful to design the procurement. So it really was kind of win-win, no excess profits. This is key to a mission-oriented approach. It has to be one that reduces, doesn't increase rent extraction. This is also a moment with the COVID uh, context that I talked about in the beginning, where we can actually, you know, experiment with conditionalities, as we've seen some countries do, like in France, but other countries not do. In France, both Air France and Renault got COVID recovery schemes conditional on them actually becoming greener companies. And, you know, in the UK, we didn't do that. We just massively bailed out EasyJet, no conditions attached. A mission-oriented approach requires a more symbiotic not a parasitic public-private partnership. We need to get our hands dirty on how to do that. That would be super useful for governing also data commons and really getting our hands around the digital platforms in such a way that we really can be building back better in terms of how data can be used to really create value and not extract it. 
Um, lastly, you know, I, I've already said the SDGs are much harder than a moon landing because it's not purely technocratic, but there was a fantastic book written by a colleague of mine, Richard Nelson, colleague meaning we've worked together, um, called The Moon in the Ghetto back in the 70s, and it's even more important today. You know, how could we have gotten to the moon, but we still have such structural inequality, structural racism, which the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, has reminded us so importantly, you know, this means we have to be you know, it's even harder, but it, it's also even more urgent. Um, and there was a lot of backlash at the time also when Kennedy was talking about going to the moon by the civil rights movement saying, for God's sakes, why are we talking about the moon when there's so many problems on earth? But precisely because there's so many spillovers that can happen also on earth and precisely because the problems on earth can learn from what it means to take seriously a problem, treat it with urgency and really get serious about the public-private partnerships uh, this is just as important. I have no time to tell you about the implications of the book for political economy, but in some ways I already have. You know, we need to rethink value, markets, organization, finance, how we distribute rewards, how we partner, and how we participate in a way that truly is co-designed. So chapter six in the book goes through that, but I've gone completely out of time. Uh, so I will stop. I'm sure Alan is happy so we can get some questions in. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mariana, for uh, a fascinating talk. I'm afraid so many questions. I don't have a chance of asking any more uh, than a small proportion of them. Um, I'm also going to sort of collate kind of similar ones. So apologies if I um, either don't ask your question or mangle uh, the question that you did want to. But you can send them all to me, by the way. Okay, they're all <laughs> Mariana, but you can send them all. I mean, to in the future. I'll look through them and think about them and hopefully respond somehow. One, one thing that comes out equal to national to international, and when you use the word moonshots, that sounds like something that's a little bit hard to do at the local level. So what, what does your view mean about the relocation of power from you know, the local to the national to the, to the international? Should I take these one at a time? or, or Yeah, I think that would be better. Okay, great. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Usually people think that I'm smarter than I am to remember four questions at once. Um, so I, so there's both the national and the international. And then even with the national, there's different um, uh, levels, right? There's local, like super local, like the example I gave with Camden, there's city level, London, there's, uh, you know, regional, and there's a huge problem in so many different countries in terms of regions and Italy, where I'm from, north, south, but also here in the UK and globally. Um, you know, many countries, it's, if, if you disaggregate uh, just from the national figures, you see huge amounts of inequality. In fact, the inequality is, is greatest usually at the postcode level. So even in the US, for example, North and South have started to converge, but at the postcode level at the New York, say, metropolitan area, huge uh, uh, increase in inequality. So those questions really, really matter. And that's precisely why um, with the Camden Council, what we wanted to do was to really go you know, get very specific in terms of the problems that were faced by the council, which are, you know, different from other councils, even though there, there can be some similarities, but also really bringing citizens in Camden to the fore of that process of designing the missions themselves. I didn't have much time to talk about it, but one thing that obviously is hugely different in terms of the moon landing and the kind of more societal missions is the who decides right? It's going to be really hard to have a, a serious kind of revolution uh, in any particular area in terms of transition, a green transition, if it's just fed from above. Everyone needs to have a more carbon neutral, you know, lifestyle. Really? What does that mean? So some of the work we also did in Manchester with Andy Burnham's team, and when I say we, I mean my colleagues at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, where we kind of do practice-based theorizing, work with policymakers, bring that back to the theory, and also uh, help set up a whole new training for our master's students around rethinking what the civil service is for. The work in Manchester also, in, in, again, involves citizens to think about their own life, literally from when they get up in the morning, go to work, and come home, what it would look like to have sustainability kind of targets throughout the day, and what would need to change in terms of uh, how the city itself operated. So I think that the big first point is that this stuff is so powerful when it's local because it's nested in people's actual experience. However, we often don't have 
the, the venues, the, the institutions that bring those citizen voices. And this is why we need to innovate also socially with things like citizen assemblies. Um, we, we saw a lot of citizen assemblies, of course, with Brexit, getting you know, people's kind of voices in and all the debate. But this is something that I think also civil servants should be trained to think about, which is empathy. You know, how do you listen for real as opposed to a tokenistic, you know, petting uh, Greta Thornburg on the head at Davos saying, oh, isn't it cute that the youth care about climate change? What does it mean to listen to a movement, to interact with a movement, a social movement in such a way that actually informs how you think about your own priorities? Um, I talk about this in the book. Obviously, that's in itself a huge book, <laughs> um, but I do think it's one of the hardest things and one of the things I found government's least able currently to do just because it hasn't been kind of placed on the forefront as important. And sorry, international, I mean, a lot of missions are international. The vaccine will only work if it's global, right? Uh, but also plastic free ocean, it's, it's not gonna work if one country tries to get the plastic out, the, you know, the water moves. And so depending also on what missions we're talking about, it also really does require the World Trade Organization, the UN to come in to make sure we also have the right regulation and inter-country agreements. And this is why it's been a bit uh, uh, upsetting if you want what's happening now with the vaccine. When you have that level of hoarding by the rich countries, you know, it ain't gonna work. Okay, thank you. Um, another theme is that if in order for your, you know, vision to become a reality, one has to persuade voters that this is what they want to vote for. And we live in a world where you know, people worry about the information that people are getting and where they're getting from it and who controls it. Do you think there's anything that needs to change there in order to help make your vision a reality? Right. So I, I get scared when you say my vision. I mean, luckily, this is <laughs> not just my vision. No. Um, and it's not a book about political science or, or you know, voting. Um, so there's, it's, there's such a deep uh, first thing that needs to be done, which is actually asking ourselves, you know, do we have democracy actually? And, you know, with all the recent events that we've had uh, with fake news and the way that also the digital platforms in some ways seem to have replaced what government should be, um, you know, doing in terms of outlawing certain types of behavior. Um, there is that whole question, which, you know, my book doesn't address. However, it does address it to, to one extent. In other words, you know, you like, we need leadership, right? So you should win the election based on your policy or vision around wanting a Green New Deal, or saying we don't need a Green Deal and having a kind of climate skeptic view, you know, of the world. If you win, right? So, you know, the, the assumption is that democracy is working, and voters are voting, and we vote people in who have a vision. And that's already a big assumption, because unfortunately, many political leaders that we have today don't necessarily have visions. I mean, that's why I kind of go through the speech when someone says, we're going to go to the moon because it's hard, not because it's easy. It's going to cost a lot of money, but, you know, don't worry about the deficit, worry about all the amazing benefits that are going to happen along the way. That itself is why I talk about vision. But the first point is we should be voting in leaders that actually have visions. If someone does get voted in because they have a wonderful, you know, vision around green and fighting climate change, what are they then going to do? This is what this book is about. Once you have, you know, an idea of where the economy and where society and where the world should go, what are you then going to do about it? And the book argues that we don't have currently the tools to foster any real radical change because the tools themselves have been decimated by all this kind of bullshit ideology about what government's for. Sorry, I'm, I'm sure we're allowed to swear a bit at the end of the talk. Um, <laughs> um, and so, you know, Anyway, I just want to say that because we assume that even if we have great leaders and great visions like the Green Deal, then, oh, that's great. Biden's in now. Fantastic. Right. Trump's no longer in. Great. Well, <laughs> what's he going to do? Does he have the, the power to do that? Do we have government organized in a particular way that can really foster a horizontal as opposed to a very vertical siloed approach? Do we actually have tools like industrial strategy and procurement to galvanize as much intersectoral collaboration as possible to get there? That's what the book focuses on, because I believe we don't have that and we radically need that if we're going to be serious. 
Um, but also the book talks about when we don't know how to govern things for the public good, that's precisely why we then end up with at best worrying about privacy and taxation with the digital giants, as opposed to having governed all that technology that government invested in in the first place in such a way that could really be uh, uh, you know, benefiting the public, which isn't easy. But we have a wonderful new grant that I'm working on also with Tim O'Reilly, funded by the Midyar Foundation, which is called Algorithmic Rents. How can we actually steer algorithms and innovation to really create value and not to extract it? Well, that needs an approach to digital technology that goes beyond break up big tech <laughs> to a much more proactive value co-creating uh, policy uh, mechanism that would really benefit, I think, competition authorities so they don't just think it's about breaking up large companies. Okay, thank you. Um, I think what you say um, resonates and, and inspires many people. Um, I, I can see that from the comments. I can see that I've never been on an event with so many people who've stayed for so long. Um, but that makes people want to do things as individuals. So what to help? So do you have anything you might suggest that they could do as individuals to pursue? Yeah, come and take our master's in public administration. <laughs> Um, I'm actually not joking, and it doesn't have to be our MPA, but what we're trying to do, I mean, and I'm actually not being facetious here, forget the our bit, because that sounds very self-serving. I truly believe you cannot get better policy without a different mindset. The current curriculum that is being fed to global civil servants, I personally think is extremely limited. It has even convinced them that government failure is even worse than market failure. So take up as little space as possible because you might crowd out business. Now, of course, crowding out does happen, but it happens funnily for the, the exact op opposite reason that people think. When you are kind of rubbish and kind of lame and don't know what you're doing, you're taking up a lot of space <laughs> and taking up space that could have been filled by more you know, dynamic actors than yourself. Um, so having a, a true kind of co-creating perspective on, on how the economy needs to be steered requires actually a different mindset. So I do think we need new training. Uh, that's why we've, we've set up the MPA. But again, I'm sure there's other great ones out there. Ours is the best. Uh, but the other thing is get involved in local, regional, national mission setting. I mean, when I say we need citizen engagement, it really goes both ways. Governments need to learn how to listen more, how to engage with citizens more and bring them to the table, for example, with the sustainable uh, the sustainability agenda. It can't be fed top down, but citizens also need to get their hands dirty and do that. And it shouldn't just be everyone kind of bringing in their own voice. We really need, as I mentioned, citizen assemblies, you know, organizations and social innovations that can really bring uh, new voices to the table. And by the way, this is also important for labor. As you might know, the uh, labor share of income globally is at a record low. The profit share is at a record high. That's why we need to make sure we have mission-oriented investments that catalyze investment, because we have an investment crisis, not a profits crisis. Plenty of profits, not enough investment. But also, you know, we need to think about labor's voice in this. So there's this concept of the just transition. And I think it's a very powerful concept, but it's a bit too late. The idea is we're going to have a transition. Oh, let's make it sure it's just. It's very different to say that labor's voice is at the table ex ante, just like other voices of the green movement and so on at the table ex ante, actually helping to think about our future. And that's why at the last chapter in the conclusion, I talk a lot about the need to reimagine our future together. And this is where kind of design uh, thinking is useful. The European Bauhaus movement, by the way, which is just kicking off is quite interesting at that level. But I do think it's, it is also about class. <laughs> we need to remember class and race are, are you know, and, and the injustice, which again, the Black Lives Matter movement has been so central in showing us that requires voices to be at the table in designing our future, not just reacting to it. And we need okay. innovations to do that. Pretty much out of time, but maybe I'll ask one very quick um, question. Um, so do you think COVID has made sort of moving in the direction you'd like us to move easier or harder? I think it's made it, um, well, harder in the sense that the challenges are just like, woo, you know, coming to us every day. And, and it is striking how some things that you'd think would have been easier haven't been easy. Uh, you know, testing, it, it's been sort of a debacle. Um, but again, that comes back down to capability. Um, with the UK government, we've seen that, for example, the vaccine rollout was much more successful because the public health system actually governed it. Um, and there was a level of trust with the people in the community, whereas when Deloitte was doing 
I feel like I'm always bashing Deloitte. I promise this is not the whole point of the book. Um, but when, you know, the consulting companies were basically asked to do the testing, it was much harder, you know. So again, that whole issue of capability has been a huge lesson and people are writing about it. We're also getting people writing about and thinking about even the Financial Times about why we might need conditionality. We don't just, you know, give away bailouts like we did with the financial crisis or like we did here now with the COVID crisis with the EasyJet kind of companies. We need that interesting kind of symbiotic ecosystem that that example I gave in France or Denmark and Austria have said no recovery funds for companies that use tax havens. Hello, you know, that's pretty obvious, but we need experiments and experience and actually bringing conditionality to the table, not as a negative thing. I don't like the word conditionality because it makes us think of the conditions with austerity. You know, we'll only give you money if you cut your deficit. Conditions are there to create symbiotic, mutualistic deals, right? So the green deal, the green bit, we kind of know what to do. Listen to the science. The deal, mm, that requires a very different public-private partnership. And what we're seeing with COVID is a level of willingness in some countries to do that, that I really hope globally we can all learn from. So we normalize conditionality as opposed to just do it in a kind of urgent crisis moment in order to really build back better. Because the build back better slogan is simply a slogan if we don't find a way to bring purpose at the center of how business and the state interact. Okay, thank you very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. The questions are still coming in, but I'm afraid we've got no time. Can you save them before they disappear? Um, I don't have that technical capability. Oh, someone can. These someone smart does. LSE folks can do that. Yes. Um, <laughs> So anyway, but thank you so much for a fascinating talk. And the book is um, available now. So please go out and, and buy it. And thank you very much.